Future City is made possible by Janine and Josh Fiddler and supported by the Baltimore Community Foundation, whose vision is that Baltimore boasts a growing economy where all have the opportunity to thrive. From WYPR in Baltimore, I'm Wes Moore, and welcome to Future City, our monthly radio conversation that moves the debate from what's wrong to what's next. Today's episode takes us to Denver, Colorado, and to a controversial topic, the decriminalization of marijuana. Denver fully legalized marijuana two years ago, and here in Baltimore, the drug is mostly illegal. And there's more on that definition in a minute. I should say up front, this is not a dear topic to everybody's heart. When the show's funders first heard that we were planning on covering it today, they were not happy. But we think it's important because right now, the marijuana arrest rate here is one of the worst in the country and rising. Blacks and whites use the drug at comparable rates, but in 2010, Baltimore City Police arrested an average of 18 black people per day for marijuana possession and only one or two whites. Key jobs like law enforcement and education exclude people from consideration who've used pot in the past. And every year, scores of our young people get picked up by police for doing nothing more suspicious than smelling like marijuana. At the federal level, marijuana is illegal, a Schedule I controlled substance that's been a major focus of the war on drugs. Marijuana arrests account for more than half of all drug arrests. Although cannabis is prescribed medically, its medical properties have been very little studied. For scientists, it's easier to get approval to study heroin than pot. At the same time, across the country, there's growing momentum towards legalizing the drug. Medical cannabis is now allowed to some degrees in 41 states. In four of those, recreational pot is legal too. And several other states will vote on that question in November. The pattern in cities and states that have made the drug fully legal is for legalization and regulation of medical marijuana to lead, and within a few years, to full decriminalization. But right now, even in most of the places where it's fine to use medical marijuana, selling it is a felony. So the country is at an awkward point, like we were at the end of Prohibition, with a patchwork of laws that contradict one another. Here in Maryland, it's legal to have a small amount of weed for personal use, but illegal to smoke it in public. It's legal to use medical cannabis and legal for doctors to prescribe it for certain conditions, but illegal to grow it yourself. We're now fighting at the state level over the demographics and affiliations of who will get to produce and sell it starting later this year. It is projected to become a multi-million dollar industry in our state alone and our leading cash crop ahead of corn. Colorado beat us to legalizing medical marijuana 16 years ago, and in 2014, it became the first place in the world where it's legal to sell small amounts of marijuana for personal use. Today on our show, we'll look 1,700 miles due west from Baltimore to Denver to consider what we can learn from the changes that resulted there in everything from healthcare to regulation to tourism to policing. But first, let's start today's episode with a story that's much closer here to home. Three years ago, a Baltimore man was away for his freshman year of college and started having seizures. They quickly became more severe and more frequent. He was hospitalized, and doctors essentially saved his life by putting him into a medically induced coma. Then they brought him out of the coma while keeping his system pumped with incredibly powerful anti-epileptic drugs like phenobarbital. Now, 
Fifteen months later, this young man who we'll call Edward for the purposes of this show is still on heavy doses of phenobarbital, and he's living back at home in Baltimore with his parents. The irony is that the drugs that saved his life are the same drugs that are suppressing his central nervous system and the same drugs that are making him incapable of going back to school and living an independent life. Future City producer Mary Wiltenberg visited with him and his mom in their Bolton Hill kitchen. As you'll hear, they've undertaken a new drug therapy regimen that seems to be showing positive results. It also happens to be illegal here in Maryland. was Edward and his mom at their home in Baltimore, sharing the details of Edward's promising but currently illegal drug therapy regimen with Future City producer Mary Wiltenberg. If you're just tuning in, I'm Wes Moore for Future City on WYPR, and the voices you just heard are now with me here in the studio. A Baltimore mom whose name I cannot share with you, and also her son, who we will call Edward. Thank you, both of you, for being here with me today. Really appreciate it. And so, Mom, maybe I can start with you, and maybe you can just talk to our listeners about what the last 24 hours alone have been like for you guys. 
So um, pretty typical in this whole process, as we lower one of the anti-epileptic drugs, he goes through withdrawal seizures. And so last night at about 2 a.m., he had a seizure. And then this morning at about 10.20, he had a seizure. And these are, you know, grand mal tonic-clonic seizures. Historically, those would knock him out for a day or two, but we have found that because of using the medical marijuana, it's pretty neuroprotective, so he is able to sit here today with us. And and be very much present. Edward, it's great to have you here as well. And, you know, one thing that we notice is you're taking a big risk to be here and to share your story. Why is it so important for you to share your story? One of the main reasons that it's really important for me to be here is you were talking earlier about the crime rates and how both impoverished communities and minority communities are seeing a much higher rate of arrest than our middle and upper class white communities. And I think that I, as a middle class white person. It's really important for me to discuss what the issue is actually like. Mom, can you bring us back to the moment when you first heard about the seizures that he was having? What was that like when you first got worried about what was happening to your son? Well, he actually came home for um, (laughs) Christmas and he came home pumped that night uh, from University of Chicago and he was on fire about everything he was doing. And then um, over the next three days had, we didn't even know what a seizure was, and we'd never seen one. He had a series of seizures that basically rendered him um, pretty unfunctional. We were just in shock. We had no idea. And then when he wound up going into status, which is when he was in the hospital seizing without stopping, you know, it's just crisis management. So we kept thinking, we're just going to get through this. We're just going to get through this. And... Um, I think most of the doctors did not think anyone was going to get through this. So um, when we got home, we've sort of slowly learned how to deal with what's going on with him because it blindsides you. You have no idea. When you say slowly deal with it and deal with the process, what do you mean? How do you slowly deal? You slowly accept that he's going to have seizures. You slowly accept that life is not it's we're not going to take a drug and get better and go back to school the same way we were that there's going to be a long process maybe of healing we hope that we'll keep the seizures um, manageable maybe beyond manageable um, so that he can go back to his academic life but in the meantime we're just sort of at the mercy of how long this takes to settle his body and find balance and if I might interject for me particularly it took a really long time to actually accept what I'm dealing with and the length of time it's going to take for me to get back to a point where I'm able to return to school. It's still difficult. It's it's still a very emotional process day to day after each seizure, um, after each time I take a dose of the Depakote and phenobarbital, the anti-epileptic drugs prescribed by the doctors, you know, each time I'm taking a dose of those, each time I'm having a seizure, it, it is really difficult to think about the fact that I missed an entire year of school 
I'm going to miss another entire year of school, possibly two, three more years of school. It's completely unknown to us at this point. And we are, like Mom said, completely at the mercy of what the illness is doing to me. And and luckily, the cannabinoids are seeming to show great promise in helping make all of this more manageable and make times like the past 24 hours when I've had two seizures yet am able to be here with you in the studio and actually am able to have a, you know, what I hope is at least a semi-understandable conversation with you about the topic. Very. If you're just joining us, uh, my name is Wes Moore here with Future City on WYPR. And in studio with me uh, is a Baltimore family, a young man named Edward, uh, who has been having multiple seizures and has been using medical marijuana as a way of treating it. So I'm going to ask both of you to stay with us because we're going to go to break. But after the break, uh, we'll return and turn our lens to Denver, where we'll get a chance to hear how that city has worked to solve some of the challenges that your family has been facing. And we'll speak with the former Denver City Council President, Mary Beth Sussman. Thanks so much for joining Future City. Please stay with us. I'm Wes Moore, and this is Future City on WYPR. In our last segment, you got a glimpse into the home and the impossible predicament of a Baltimore college student and his mom who are now breaking the law to get him what they consider to be life-saving treatments for his seizures. That tension should ease some within the next year as Maryland's medical marijuana industry comes online. But in the meantime, families from across the country are flocking to cities like Denver where marijuana became legal for the first time for medical use and then two years ago for personal use. Instrumental in that change was our next guest. Joining me now by phone is the former Denver City Council President, Mary Beth Sussman, who has overseen the process of pot becoming legal in her city. Mary Beth, welcome and thank you so much. Thank you for having me. So first, um, if you can, help me get a picture of what's actually changed in Denver. You know, how does it look different? How does it smell different? Uh, how has this changed uh, the, the scene that we have in Denver? We actually now have uh, more marijuana outlets than we have Starbucks. There are quite a number of them, and we have not only the retail stores, but we have cultivation facilities, and we have manufacturers of edibles. And we have testing facilities. I don't know that it has changed the character of the city very much. Um, one can't use marijuana in public, and so you don't smell marijuana too much more than you would in any city, probably. But if you live near a grow or a cultivation facility, they're called grows, cultivation facilities are, you can be overwhelmed with the smell. That's why we actually have new enforcement on um emitting odors out of cultivation facilities. But other than that, it all seems to be going pretty well. But but you talk about how I mean, this really has a, become a fully integrated part 
into the into the fabric, into the culture, uh, into the economy of the of the city. What did it take to actually make that happen? About three or four years ago, we approved medical marijuana, and it has it had a lot of restrictions. But then, the voters of Colorado uh, voted to have recreational uh, marijuana. And that took a lot of thought. We, first of all, uh, it, because it was a statewide uh, ballot issue, and so it became legal in all of Colorado. So we first had to, we met with the uh, state legislature and state agencies to create a sort of structure of how we were going to, um, oh, do time, place, and manner of how, how you could use marijuana. And then each city could decide for itself whether it was going to allow retail marijuana, and Denver opted in to that, so then our council. So we spent about mm, five or six months meeting almost uh, weekly all together as a council to craft an ordinance on what the various rules would be about the recreational marijuana. What did you find to be some of the biggest hurdles that you all had to overcome in order to, uh, in order to get this passed? Well, for the first of all was whether it could be used in public. Also, distances that we wanted the stores to be from schools and from uh, daycare centers and rec centers. Um, we had to decide what public meant. Um, we we spent several days discussing whether you'd be able to smoke it on your front porch of your house. Um, was that public or was that private? We finally decided that that was also private. You can smoke it on your on your property. It was also, you can grow it yourself. And so we wanted to say, how much can you grow? There was a limitation on medical marijuana, and we wanted to make a, a limitation on recreational marijuana as well. So we did make rules about how much you could grow for yourself, which led to some interesting things because we... There were, there were all kinds of new businesses that cropped up, which were people who would grow it for others. So that we had a rule that each individual could have six plants, but you had these um, enterprising people who said, look, I'll grow your six plants for you, and then he would grow 30 other people's six plants until he had uh, a huge grow facility himself that was unlicensed. So we've had some very interesting uh, experiences with it. So it's, it's breeded the entrepreneurial spirit inside of Denver. That's absolutely right. <laughs> That's right. In fact, I was asked to talk to a class at um, Johns Hopkins once, a class called Capitalism about marijuana capitalism. And I told them, I said, here, I can't believe I'm an aging hippie once thought of as a commie pinko talking to a, a class on capitalism about <laughs> drugs. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I mean, but, I, but, but this has had very real economic impacts to the city and to the state. I mean, can you quantify what kind of impacts we're talking about here? Well, in 2015, Denver itself had got about $29.5 million in tax uh, revenue from the sale of marijuana, both medical and um, recreational. And year-to-date, and as of August, uh, we're about $17.8 million, so we're thinking we're going to break that $29.5 million this year and have greater revenues. How have, how have you structured the way that the, the, the revenues are being dispersed? And, and, uh, and can you talk a little bit about how, uh, what the economic impact has meant for the diversity of the economic field? We, we have a special tax on marijuana. We have a regular sales tax, and then we added a 3.5% extra tax on it. And that extra tax is used for 
uh, education and regulation and enforcement of the rules. Uh, but the rest of it goes right into general fund. If you think about it, marijuana production is a manufacturing industry. It's a primary industry which creates dollars in an economy. It's not like service industries that just have dollars sort of multiply and are traded between each other. It actually creates dollars. And then it has had a need for some very interesting machines. Actually, their electric bills are amazing. In one grow, they told me that their electric bill per month is $30,000 because they keep it all under grow lights. All of it has to be raised indoors. And that has, it has used up our warehouse space like crazy. It has raised the rates for renting warehouse space enormously. It had, it, there are machines that the people use inside the grows that will cost, you know, $200,000, a thresher, for example, to separate it out. The hydroponics industry of <laughs> growing um, marijuana, how to do it most efficiently. It's been an amazing um, experience in terms of the diversity of the businesses that it has produced. If you're just joining me, you are listening to Future City with Wes Moore, and we're talking with the former city council president for Denver, Miss Mary Beth Sussman, uh, about how Denver moved towards not just decriminalization, but eventually full legalization of marijuana. So, Mary Beth, what type of challenges do you still face as you're thinking about the continued growth of the industry and, uh, and how can people continue to perceive the growth of the industry? Well, we're actually hoping that many states legalize it so that we won't be thought of as the different state and so that it becomes kind of a ho-hum thing that, you know, everybody is doing it. Our marijuana tourism is, is hard to pin down. We do have some of it, but there's a lot of reasons to come to Colorado, and the marijuana tourism it doesn't account for a very large proportion of the tourism that we have. One of the issues we just had the other day is that there there are illegal grows of marijuana, and the police have just asked us to increase their budget for storage space for the seized marijuana that they have. Apparently, they have so much of it that they don't have space for it, which I thought was an interesting problem. The other problem is that the stores have tended to congregate in, what you, as you can imagine, lower rent areas because the rent is lower, and so we are trying to make even more rules about the spacing of marijuana outlets and uh, grow facilities. So we continue to uh, make, as, as we come up against um, certain things, we need to make new rules. That's Denver's former city council president, Mary Beth Sussman, who presided over the legalization of pot in her city. Mary Beth, thank you so much for joining us and adding light on this topic. Sure. After the break, we'll talk with a reporter who's been covering that change in Denver. This is Wes Moore with Future City on WYPR. Stay with us. I'm Wes Moore, and this is Future City on WYPR. Welcome back to the show. In our last segment, we heard from Denver's former city council president but current council member, Mary Beth Sussman, about what's changed there since pot was fully legalized two years ago. Now, we'll talk with the man who's writing the first draft of that history. Ricardo Baca 
is a marijuana editor for the Denver Post and creator of its pot-focused web magazine, The Cannabist. His first year of covering the new marijuana industry in Denver is a subject of a recent documentary film, Rolling Papers. Ricardo, it is great to have you on the show. Wes, thanks for having me on, man. You know, the first thing I wanted to know is, is you know, thinking about the outcomes that you've seen thus far and that you've covered. Which of the stats and the studies that you have seen and explored and, and put out there have been the most meaningful to you about the impact this has had so far? You know, ultimately, there are just some numbers that we're finally starting to get, because imagine being a journalist in this space, right as Colorado is implementing these sales in early 2014, but they're doing so in a vacuum because what they're doing has never been done in the modern world before. But now, with a few years under our belt, we're starting to get some really important data from the federal government and also our local health department, our local state patrol, and, and that data has been really interesting. You know, we're, we're, we're seeing teen use in Colorado staying the same as it was before a recreationally legal era. We're also seeing between 2014 and 15, the number of stoned driving uh, arrests actually went down in Colorado by a couple. So, you know, there's some encouraging data here that tells us that this isn't going to be nearly as bad as a lot of people thought it was going to be. As you think about the myths and the stereotypes that people had about it, you talk about how things like, you know, stone driving is not as prevalent as people thought. What were some of the other myths that you had heard uh, or, or even kind of approached the work thinking that we're going to be there that have just been very different than as you've now really delved into this? Yeah, sure. You know, I think the biggest one, is, it really comes down to the drug war. It really comes down to what President Nixon started back in the day in his campaign and later in his presidency, really by criminalizing this substance and also spreading just a lot of lies about it that he and his top advisors flat out knew weren't true. The short story of that is Nixon had his enemies in the campaign and the presidency, and they uh, it was the anti-war left and uh, the blacks, and so he attached each of them to a, a substance. He criminalized that substance and then let everything play out in the court of public theater on the 10 o'clock news. And then we had decades of misinformation about cannabis. And of course, it's an intoxicant. It is a psychedelic substance. But at the same time, it is absolutely not what it was made out to be by so many of our leaders. And so I think that's the biggest one and probably the impetus for why we're seeing legalization uh, become such a real conversation throughout the world. What I'd like to do now is turn us back to Baltimore. And the picture here is pretty dramatic at the moment. Uh, the Legislative Black Caucus has pledged to keep Maryland's Medical Cannabis Commission from granting licenses to distribute the drug since the 15 distributors that were approved last month were almost all white men. Companies that didn't make the list of the 15 are suing, and the Baltimore Sun just reported that the Maryland General Assembly's ethics staff is now investigating State Delegate Dan Morheim, who helped craft the legislation regulating marijuana here, but also acted as a paid consultant for a company that won two of the lucrative licenses to dispense the drug. Ricardo Baca, who, is, uh, who covers the marijuana industry in Colorado for the Denver Post, what has been the impact of inclusion and race in the way that Denver has viewed this, those things? That's one of those parts of this whole conversation that really hasn't played out yet, but I can tell you what we've seen already. Unfortunately, we haven't seen a lot of inclusion, especially at that top level. 
where we're talking about owners of marijuana businesses, you know, in, in terms of trying and hoping to see more ethnic diversity there and more inclusion there, especially since the drug war primarily targeted young African-American and Latino males. And so we're not seeing that yet. And of course, up there in Maryland, you guys have some interesting lawsuits and conversations happening around uh, your medical marijuana licensing. And you're, we're seeing different experiments throughout the country. Uh, one particularly interesting one is in Oakland, California, where the city council there has actually implemented a system that a certain percentage of the marijuana licenses there must be owned by the people who were most negatively affected by the drug war, and that is black people. Now, you talk about some of the things that have happened that have been positive developments. What are some of the things that you did not anticipate that have been bigger challenges than you expected? There were a couple big ones. And of course, I think year one, we certainly struggled with edibles and how complicated they are, especially to a rookie consumer who isn't used to it and and might pick up a package and say, oh, this is regulated and I can eat the whole thing. You know, we saw intelligent people like the New York Times, Maureen Dowd doing that. And of course, that was not smart. You need to read the package. This is an intoxicant. This is a drug with psychoactive capabilities. So uh, certainly edibles was a big one. In fact, we have a big deadline this weekend where edibles will become more instantly recognizable when outside of a package. There's a specific uh, symbol appearing on all of these labels and the actual edibles themselves. So it's an ongoing conversation. I think year two, we kind of got into the conversation about consumption. You know, here we are in a state where if you're over 21, anybody can buy this. Yet, there are almost no places to consume this substance, you know. The only place you can totally legally consume marijuana, whether you're talking about a vaporizer or an edible or flower, is a private home with that person's uh, permission. So even if you're at an Airbnb, you need the homeowner's permission. You can't do it on the street. You can't do it in the park. You can't do it in your hotel. This is uh, an issue we're still dealing with, and actually voters here in Denver will be voting on a measure that could allow limited social use in certain businesses. If you're just tuning in, I'm Wes Moore with Future City on WYPR. And speaking by phone, the voice you just heard is Ricardo Baca, who covers Colorado's marijuana industry for the Denver Post. Joining us now is Major Neil Franklin, a retired career officer with the Baltimore City and Maryland State Police, and also executive director of the national advocacy group, LEAP, Law Enforcement Against Prohibition. Major Franklin, welcome to the show. Well, thanks for having me on, Wes. So thinking about what we've heard that's taking place in Denver and also the things that are taking place uh, you know, now here in, in, in Maryland, uh, I know that you started your career as a, as a narcotics officer. How has that background led you to the work that you're doing now with, uh, with LEAP and how you think about this process going forward in the state? Yeah, what led me was back in 2000, after I retired from the Maryland State Police, a uh, good friend of mine, Ed Totley, he was a uh, undercover agent for the Maryland State Police, and uh, he was working with the FBI down in the Washington, D.C. area on a task force, and he was buying cocaine from a mid-level drug dealer. And uh, it's just the nature of this illicit underground business. You know, violence follows it everywhere it goes. It's part of the business. And this drug dealer decided he wanted to rip Ed Totley off and keep the money and the drugs. And in order to do that, in such a illegal business, he figured he'd have to kill Ed Totley. And that's what he did. He shot him at point-blank range and killed him. 
it was that moment that drew my attention to the violence surrounding this trade. And then I started thinking about the civilians, such as the Dawson family of five that was killed in East Baltimore just two years after Ed was killed. The drug dealer uh, who set up shop right outside of their home, this was an act of retaliation for her working with the police uh, in, in trying to get him arrested with, along with his crew, and he set their home on fire in the middle of the night and killed the entire family, five kids and mother and father. So it was violence that brought me to this place of activism to end drug prohibition, to reduce crime, disease, death, and addiction. And uh, so here I am today now seeing the other evidence of these failed policies, such as mass incarceration and militarization of our police departments, very, very strained and problematic police community relations, as we've seen here reflected in Baltimore with the Department of Justice investigation, and more and more and more. So that's, that's why I'm here. How do you see marijuana as different than some of these other drugs we're talking about, or do you? Well, you know, we know that prohibition doesn't work for any of these drugs, whether we're talking marijuana, whether we're talking cocaine, whether we're talking meth, heroin, or anything else. We have to figure out the proper system of regulation and control. You cannot control anything that you prohibit. All you can do is turn it over to organized crime, gangs and crews, to manage within our neighborhoods and our communities, and we see what happens when we turn it over to them. So it's about the policy for us, but, you know, the more problematic you believe a drug can be, that's more of a reason for regulating and controlling it. So we've, we've started down this path, thank goodness, for marijuana, because that's the number one moneymaker of organized crime. So we can get that off the table, and we can start working on these other drugs. Ricardo, if we can just uh, loop you back in here real quick. Ricardo Baca, who, is, uh, who covers the marijuana industry in Colorado for the Denver Post, what, what, are you, what are your thoughts after hearing Major Franklin talk about prohibition and, and particularly how violence and the war on drugs played into that? Yeah, sure. You know, this is, we're seeing this in our communities locally, you know, on a, uh, I'm seeing it in Denver and Colorado, but this is also an international concern. You know, of course, it's no surprise that we used to get so much of our illegal drugs, cannabis included, from south of the border. You know, this is a very big concern, especially when you consider um, what we've seen over the years with narco trafficking. You know, you can't downplay that as as a benefit to legalization. And, and on an international level, one of the things we're seeing is, you know, there are fewer pounds of cannabis being caught at the U.S.-Mexico border uh, simply because, in part, you know, legalization north of the border. They're, they're trying to sneak less cannabis through the border. They're growing less. Uh, these cartels are recognizing that their product is losing money and it's becoming more and more difficult. They're tearing up marijuana plants and, and planting poppy plants, and that's what they're seeing in those northern Mexico states that have always been cultivating cannabis for decades. So I think the violence is something that you have to consider when you are a person voting on one of these nine marijuana initiatives in November. This is Future City on WYPR. You were just hearing the voice of Ricardo Baca, who covers the Colorado marijuana industry for the Denver Post, and also Major Neil Franklin, who's a retired career officer, and also the executive director of a national advocacy group called LEAP, Law Enforcement Against Prohibition. I want to thank you both for joining us today. Thanks for having me on, Wes. Yeah, thank you. Now, I'd like to bring Todd Oppenheim into the conversation, who's a, uh, a longtime public defender in this city and who's also seen your uh, more than your fair share of, uh, of marijuana arrests. Uh, Todd, thanks so much for joining the show. 
Thanks, Wes. Thanks for having me and my uh, and our perspective on. Thank you. And and, and I want to I want to uh, ask you a question about the whole idea of the the gateway drug conversation, where oftentimes people say, well, marijuana is a gateway drug to to other drugs, harder drugs, uh, life of crime, etc. Can you speak a little bit about uh, that perspective and how your uh, history has really uh, how how you view that perspective based on your history? I think it's been disproven that um, marijuana leads to harder drugs, and it's typically not the same sort of person that might get caught up in, in a marijuana arrest. What we've seen through the decriminalization of under 10 grams of marijuana is a tremendous reduction for people that would normally be um, caught up and entangled in, in these petty marijuana cases across the state. And in Baltimore, that affects indigent people and mainly an African-American population. So, you know, a lot of people that don't have criminal records, people that are recreational drug users get arrested for these offenses a lot, which is very different than people who are arrested for heroin addictions, cocaine addictions, that often have serious mental health issues that tie into those types of arrests. So it's a very different client, I think, that is entangled because of the criminalization of of marijuana. Another way of looking at the gateway is that it's often a law enforcement gateway, where what I see through my cases, my colleagues' cases, I had one this afternoon in court, where the pretext of marijuana, whether it's the smell or the suspicion of somebody having it, will often lead to bigger and better things, arrests for more serious offenses. So, so to be clear, when we're talking about the, the, the criminal justice system and particularly the role that narcotics plays, what percentage of the narcotics crime uh, and, you know, the narcotics arrests in our, in our city, in our state, have to do with marijuana versus other drugs? I can't give you a, an exact number, but it, it's more than you would think because let's not forget that marijuana will often be charged as a felony offense, even when in small amounts. So I think that what legalization might do is not only affect the large number of petty marijuana arrests that that we've already seen go down, you know, less people walking around with criminal records because of that, but it's also going to affect small amount arrests that are charged as felonies, because to be charged with possession with the intent to distribute marijuana, there is no requisite amount that you have to have. Um, If there's some sort of suspicion that you're involved in, in sales or you have some sort of paraphernalia with you, um, it's often charged as a more serious offense. And let's not forget that a conviction for marijuana is never expungible. There's only a few expungible offenses, and those are typically nuisance crimes. So possession of marijuana, now if it's more than 10 grams, it's just a simple possession charge, could be on your criminal record forever. You've been listening to Todd Oppenheim, who's a public defender in the city of Baltimore, uh, and hearing his perspectives on the prospects of decriminalization and also legalization of marijuana in the state of Maryland. I'd like to now introduce Kevin Sabet, who is the president of SAM, Smart Approaches to Marijuana, and also a former White House advisor to President Obama on drug policy. Kevin, it's great to talk to you again. How are you doing? 
Wes, nice to talk to you too. Doing great, thank you. You know, we've had a chance to hear a collection of different perspectives, uh, most notably from lawmakers in Colorado and also mm-hmm. from uh, from editors in Colorado who were telling us about how well the transition has been going so far uh, in Denver mm-hmm. and in Colorado. Uh, what are your thoughts when you hear uh, statements like the, the transition has been going well? In, in Colorado, what we've seen, when I talk to ER docs or teachers or parents or community organizers, not the government or, you know, people who rely on ad revenue <laughs> for pot, but actually people who deal with this every day, um, they are not saying it's going well. They're saying they're having more disciplinary problems at school. They're saying they're more, having more hospital visits because little kids are getting their hands on these little gummy bears and, uh, and uh, candies that look like regular candies, but they're actually laced with marijuana. Um, and um, all kinds of you know, law enforcement that talks about the DUI issues. You know, really, the, the, the big issue in Colorado is the mass commercialization of pot. It's sort of like big tobacco and all over again. And I'm very disturbed when I hear about the fact that in, in, uh, in Denver, there are more marijuana storefronts in poor neighborhoods and actually in communities of color. And what's interesting, when you talk to the uh, Hispanic and other leaders there, they are very upset about it. They, they say, wait a minute, why are you you know, bringing in the pot shops in our neighborhoods? We, we need better schools. We need better infrastructure. We don't, we don't need pot shops. Well, some people say that the, the money and the tax revenue that's, that they're getting actually from this decriminalization, yeah. that that's going towards education, that's going towards, uh, you know, helping poor and, and, and under-resourced communities. Uh, what, what do you not, say when you yeah. hear that? Well, the reality is it's not going to those things at all. It's a drop in the bucket. First of all, it's something like $100 million, which is nothing compared to the 50, 40 to $50 billion state budget. And they have not built one new school because of pot. And actually, a lot of the revenue has been going to regulate marijuana itself. So they have a whole bureaucracy. They have a whole. They have state officials. They have people who you know are sort of in charge of implementing this. That that costs money. So I, Colorado's own marijuana czar, the advisor to the governor, who really has to sort of do this. And I kind of feel sorry for him to have to deal with this very difficult issue. His number one issue, Andrew Friedman, he says. Do not do this for the revenue. That is a bad idea because this is not about revenue. You could do it for other reasons. Definitely don't think that you're going to be making money from this. I, I, I would listen to him. And, and what are some of the other reasons that people talk about why it should be done? Because I think one thing that people know is that the status quo in the way that right. people have dealt with this issue, right. um, particularly the, 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 the massive disparities in, in criminalization, right. of it, uh, can't right. stay the same. So how, sh- how should people right. be thinking about it and what should be the motivations and reasons behind it? You're exactly right. There has been a mass disparity. There is a massive issue with arrest records, even in decriminalized places, um, that we must deal with. And we don't want to give people criminal records for using pot, because we know that the enforcement will be disproportionate, simply because, frankly, richer people can, you know, use marijuana indoors in the basement and not get caught. And folks who don't have as much money, really, they're out in public more often, they're going to, and they're, they're dealing with law enforcement for other reasons more often. So there will be disparate arrest rates, and we have to be very mindful of that. But the answer to that issue is not Big Tobacco 2.0. You know, we had an industry in this country that lied to the American people for a century just so they could get rich. And I think the move to legalize in Colorado and elsewhere, it's not about marijuana. It's about money. It's about making money and about a small number of people. And by the way, that small number of people are... Uh, really 30-some-year-old rich white guys, Wes, that you and I probably went to Oxford with right. when we were there. I mean, these are smart guys with, you know, Ivy League MBAs, and, and they see this as a money-making thing. And when it becomes about money, 
that's when we see the disparate impacts actually on the communities of color and communities that have been disenfranchised. Nobody can say that alcohol being legal has been helpful for communities of color and poorer communities. And I worry that we're, if we copy the alcohol and tobacco models, which is what Colorado was very proudly doing, as you've been talking to folks, that we see that disparate impact. So, look, what it would look like to me is prevention, early intervention, non-criminal penalties. We don't need to be putting anybody in prison for smoking a joint. Um, Don't give people criminal records either. Work with communities. But let's deal with the core issues in those communities, education, health, housing, all of those things. The idea that we're going to put a pot shop and that's going to be helpful to people who already are dealt a bad hand in life, it, it doesn't make any sense. What I also think is really interesting is that when you look at arrests and disparity of arrests, which I think is a huge issue in the criminal justice system that we have to confront, in Colorado, more kids are being arrested for pot than they were before legalization. And the groups that's getting arrested, sort of the the increase is coming from, are young black and young Hispanic kids. And I think people are shocked at that. I'm I'm shocked at that. So explain to me. So despite legalization... More black and Latino kids are being arrested yes. now than before? Absolutely. Kids are bringing it to school. Kids are using it in public. And they may have already had disproportionate arrests for everything else. And so they're now having disproportionate arrests for, for example, bringing pot to school or public use, using on the corner, whatever. Um, but they're being targeted more. And, uh, you know, this goes to the fact that legalization is not the answer to the very valid point that we need criminal justice reform. It's, it's just much more nuanced. Kevin Sabet, the president of SAM, Smart Approaches to Marijuana, uh, whose site is uh, learnaboutsam.org, and also a former White House advisor to both Democratic and Republican administrations. Kevin, thank you so much for joining us on Future City. Thank you. You're listening to Future City on WYPR, and I'm Wes Moore. And we've spent the past hour talking about the implications of of marijuana, uh, the medicinal marijuana, the decriminalization of marijuana, the, the legalization of marijuana. And while we've talked about the economic implications and the criminal justice implications, it's important that we don't forget about the human implications. And I, and I want to bring the, the family that has been here in the studio with me the entire time back into this conversation. Uh, it was a, it's a mother and a son who are very openly breaking the law because a mother uh, feels that introducing marijuana into treatments for her son, who years ago started having serious epileptic seizures, and the marijuana has actually been the thing that has helped helped him throughout this process. After hearing what we've heard for this past hour from folks in Denver and folks in Baltimore about the policy implications of what we're talking about, uh, you as a mom here in Baltimore City who's dealing with this issue every single day, what are your thoughts? What um, what really struck me was um, were the comments from the public defender about um, not being able to have your record expunged if you're caught um, possessing any amount if the intent is to distribute. And this is one of the main reasons I wanted to come on the show is because I'm just a mom trying to save my kid's life. And um, when I picked up the last... Um, I went and picked up two ounces of weed to come home to make his medication. And I have two ounces of weed sitting on my passenger seat. And I pull up behind a cop car and I'm thinking, hmm, maybe this isn't so smart of me to have this out on my passenger seat. And when I talked to people afterward, they said with, you know, great disdain about the fact that this is the case, they said, no, you're a middle-aged white woman. Nothing would happen to you. 
And it makes me very emotional because I shouldn't have the ability to access something to save my kid's life that someone else doesn't have the equal ability to access. And that really goes back, uh, this is Edward speaking, uh, that goes back to what I said at the beginning when you, Wes, asked about why we felt like coming on the program today was something that we were really willing to take the risk to do uh, and really felt the need to do. I, I just think that the human implication that she makes very evident there is just very interesting. I've been struck by the fact and reminded by the fact that throughout the entire interview, I've called you by a name that's not your real name. And I've called you mom because of an understanding that what you all are doing every single day is technically against the law. And I'm also struck by the fact that because of what you're seeing and because of the fact that it's working, you would do it over and over and over again if you had to. Absolutely. And I think as his case becomes less critical and we have the space to be more helpful to others, that is what I would hope we would be able to do is to help other people equally be able to access and think about this as a possibility for their own kids. Mom, Edward, thank you both so much for joining us here today on Future City. Thank Thank you. you. Well, let that be the last word for the show. But I do want to end our time with a few questions that we have to wrestle with if progress is going to walk alongside policy change. What about the countless men and women in Baltimore who now have criminal records because they broke laws in the past that are no longer criminal offenses? How do we make sure that this burgeoning million and billion dollar industry is inclusive and transformational, not just for a few, but for all of our communities? And as we saw during this hour, this obviously has very real public health benefits, but how do we make sure that we aren't underestimating the public health consequences? And maybe you have questions of your own. We welcome your feedback, and you can email us with your thoughts and questions. The address is futurecity at wypr.org. Future City is produced by Mary Wiltenberg and edited by Aaron Hankin. The show airs here on WYPR on the third Wednesday of each month at 1 p.m. and again at 9 p.m. You can also hear this episode and past episodes online at wypr.org. For 88.1 WYPR, your NPR news station, I'm Wes Moore. Funding for Future City is provided by grants from Josh and Janine Fiddler and the Baltimore Community Foundation.